This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Miley Malloy, author of the novels Liars and Saints and A Family Daughter, as well as the Apothecary Trilogy for Young Readers and three short story collections. Her essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal, among others. Her latest novel, Do Not Become Alarmed, tells the story of two cousins and their families who take a holiday cruise that turns to emotional horror when the children disappear on a Central American beach. We began by discussing the genesis of this novel. I was reading the novel A High Wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes. So it's from 1929, and it's about kids who get accidentally taken by pirates. And the pirates don't really want the kids, and the kids kind of love being on the pirate ship, mostly. And it's very dark and very funny. And it's about kids who don't know how much danger they're in because they're kids. And I wanted to write a novel like that, about about that, about kids who don't know how much peril they're in because they're kids. And I'd been writing books for kids. My last three books were a middle grade trilogy. Uh, so I'd been writing about kids in danger for years, but in that, in a different world where they're much better, you know, kids are resourceful and resilient, but especially so in kids' books. Um, And to stay with the parents while the kids are missing seemed like an interesting way to move back to books for adults. So in this story, you have these two families that are cousins, and they're on a, on a, cruise to some Central American countries, some are named, some aren't. And the kids end up, they go to a beach basically through a few accidents. They end up at, at a beach and the kids get washed up the upriver and the parents didn't notice it. And that's when they sort of go on their own adventure and they're missing. And you tell the book from various points of view. Why did you decide that that was the structure you wanted to use? I started writing short stories and I wasn't sure I could write a novel. And the first novel I wrote, I took two linked short stories and made them the first two chapters and then moved forward from there. And I think for that reason, shifting close third person, passing the story off to different characters has always made sense to me. I, you know, those um, nature documentaries like Blue Planet or Planet Earth, um, where they have the baby seal hiding under the ice from the polar bear and cringing as the polar bear paw comes down through the ice and you really want the baby seal to live. And then you shift and you're up on the ice and you see the mother polar bear coming across the ice with her tiny cub. And if she doesn't find a baby seal to eat, then she won't be able to make milk and the cub will die. And you really want her to get a baby seal. And I, I just love that kind of narrative structure where you are on the side of the of the character you're with and then you shift and you see the story from the perspective of some other character um, and and then the story naturally is passed off between them. So that's how I've written all of my novels but one. Um, and And this one started with the two families and they each had two kids because I wanted the sibling relationships. Um, and then they meet some people on the ship whose world is different from theirs and experience is different from theirs. 
And then when they're in Central America, they meet people whose experience is very different from theirs. And so it sort of ended up being about six families, um, two North American, two Central American, and two South American. But I didn't know it was going to get so populated when I started it. I, you know, I'm always kind of feeling my way forward as I go. What brought you to the fact that you wanted it to be a cruise that they go on? It was partly a nod to a high wind in Jamaica because of the pirates um, and the fact that it takes place at sea. And it was partly because I knew I wanted it to be about safety and danger. And a cruise ship feels so safe and seems like such a cocoon where everything is provided and the kids can run about around by themselves. But then you look over the railing and there's this 14-foot 14-story drop to churning water, and it's still a ship at sea with all of the inherent dangers. Um, so, so it seemed like a sort of like a good place to start. And also, it means that you're stopping in ports that you don't know, and getting off in places that you're you know where you're not familiar with the place or the language or you know, you just kind of drop down in a place and then a new place the next day. So it sort of gave me a good place to start. The story does shift back and forth between the kid's journey and what the parents are experiencing. The parents are more rot. I mean, the kids are upset, but they're also having these kind of strange, surreal new experiences and they aren't being treated badly for the most part. So tell me, about getting into the heads of the parents because you're talking about six different parents and what was important for you to explore? Well, the way that they would blame themselves and each other. Uh, the first draft was more the women and children and when I went back, I wanted to make sure that the fathers had more time. Um, and, and you know, some of the parents are there when the kids go missing and some are not and the sort of blame and recrimination and, you know, they're, they're, they're people who think that they've worried about everything so nothing can go wrong and who get completely blindsided by this thing they didn't expect. Um, and I think for the women, that, that thing of trying to hold everything all together and, like, what happens if you don't, if you let down your guard for a minute was sort of central to it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Miley Malloy, author of the novel Do Not Become Alarmed. When we first meet the families, we meet Liv and Nora and their cousins. And I'm wondering if that was important for you to have them not just be friends, but be family. They were actually friends in the first draft. And I think they were sort of more alike than the women um, and, and I decided that in an Aristotelian sense, they should be brought closer, that it would be a better story if they were closer. And so I decided I would make them sisters. And I thought this was a genius idea. And I told a friend who has a sister who's close to her in age that I was going to make them sisters. And she said, I would murder my sister if my kids got lost on her watch. And I thought, OK, maybe not sisters um, but cousins who grew up together seemed like a good compromise. It meant they were closer. It also meant that they had a history together. And I think kids who grow up together kind of differentiate on purpose. It just it gave me more more history for them and their their relationship. So the kids end up being taken by his name is Raul. How did you create a 
kidnapper, per se, who wasn't going to be some stereotypical Central American bad guy. Um, I just tried to make all the characters feel real, you know, um, and like real people. Um, there is the one character who who is a bad guy in the way sociopaths are bad guys. And I, and that's not because he's Central American. It's because he's um, a bad person. Um, but all of the others um, aren't. And, and I, I, there's a, I, I got sort of interested in the question of sociopathy, sociopathy in the last couple of years and how hard it is for, to understand um, sort of not having a conscience and and I think that was part of what I was thinking about while I was writing it. And but but then, you know, the the other there's a little girl who's traveling north um, to try to get to her parents, and she was really important for the book. And I, I had written her after the kids went missing, and then ended up moving her chapters earlier because she creates such context for the Americans and their assumptions about safety um, and their assumptions about what a kid is capable of um and and like moving her chapters earlier just changed the whole book and gave you kind of a wider perspective and did you learn something along the way of about yourself as a writer or about your thoughts about race and class and privilege because you know you have these americans you have some kids that they're with that are South American, that there's privilege and non-privilege. Yes. I, I, I really set out with just the idea of kids in danger who don't know they are. Um, and, and as I'm, I always figure out what a book is about as I'm writing it and, and discovering that, that it was about privilege and about America's place in the world and about accidents of birth and circumstance and geography and how they determine our assumptions about, you know, about safety, that that all sort of became clear to me as I was writing it. Definitely. It also made me think about parenting and that if you take your eye off the ball for maybe five minutes, what can happen Mm -hmm. and the guilt and the blame. Um, Can you talk about writing that aspect? Because it's really a moment that changes their lives. Yes. I think anyone who's ever taking care of a kid has had that thing where suddenly the kid is there and then the kid is gone and your heart races and your body is flooded with adrenaline and then you find the kid. Um, but the fear, like sort of dramatizing what happens if that doesn't, if you, if you let your guard down for a minute and, and the worst thing does happen, just what, how that plays out. Um, a lot of people I love had babies while I was writing this and which is just such a beautiful act of optimism. Um, and I, and I think, so, I think it was a way of sort of thinking about parenthood and motherhood and the fear and anxiety that come with having to keep this child alive. Do you think these characters did learn anything from their catastrophe? I think they just learned that, that a blow can come from anywhere and it's more likely to come to some people than others, but that, no one is protected. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Miley Malloy, author of the novel Do Not Become Alarmed. How do you set out about writing something that's kind of considered a thriller? How do you keep that momentum and suspense going? 
I didn't set out to write a thriller, um, but I do think that kids, writing for kids made my plot devising muscle stronger. <laughs> and because I've just written these three novels for nine to 12 year olds, um, you really have to keep things moving. And I like a fast plot with stuff that happens anyway, but I think it just made me better at it. Um, and so I think I was bringing things I'd learned. My first four books were for adults and I had learned a lot about character and structure and language and interiority. And then I, I just gotten kind of a workout in suspense and adventure. And I think this book was kind of the bringing together of those two modes. So even though I don't think of it as an actual thriller, I think just keeping the pace moving and making sure I always, always was passing the story off and something was always happening and someone new was always coming in when you needed them to came from writing the kids' books. What draws you to writing young adult books? Uh, I'd never planned to. Um, some filmmaker friends of mine wanted to make a family movie set during the Cold War in the 50s and asked me to write a novel that they could base it on. Um, and it really just seemed like it was going to be this quick experiment. Uh, and it took over my life for six years. And it was really fun and really freeing. And they're Cold War spy novels with kids and magic. And when you've been writing realistic fiction for adults, having characters who can fly and be invisible opens up a whole new world. And I, and I do think it opened up parts of my brain that I hadn't been using before. I can't believe someone just said, hey, can you write a novel? And you were like, sure. <laughs> um, it was at that kind of vulnerable moment when you've just finished a book and you don't know what you're going to do next and you're kind of waiting for the well to fill up. Yeah, I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> Did they make the movie? No, they're developing it right now as a TV series, which I think actually makes a lot more sense, partly because the movie and TV business has changed since I wrote the first book, but also because I think it's hard to adapt novels as films. I think there's kind of too much story and you end up having to compress too much. But I do think they adapt really naturally for a series. I think that's so interesting and almost like sounds like a relief, actually, uh, especially probably since you've published, once you published your first book, there's pressure to keep going. And, you know, you do have a well and obviously there's inspiration all around you. But there must have been some sense of relief, too, when someone said, can you just write this? And then it doesn't mean your imagination can't go wild, but it almost put some parameters on this endless world. Yeah, it was great. It was a great jumping off point. It was a great, I, I'm, I'm really glad it happened. Um, Can you talk about the title, Do Not Become Alarmed? Yes. I had long ago wanted to write a short story with that title, and I'd never made the short story work. But it's from the plaque in elevators that says, if the elevators, if the elevator doors fail to open, please do not become alarmed. And then below that, it says, please push the button marked alarm to summon help. I think the, the sort of contradiction and absurdity of that and the fact that if someone says do not become alarmed, your heart rate immediately goes up. Um, so it's kind of a reassurance and it's kind of not a reassurance at the same time. I just thought it was a good title and, and I thought it was something kids would notice at that moment when they're kind of noticing absurdity and language and um, and I didn't I started this without a title um, and worked on it almost the whole way through without a title and then toward the end I sort of realized oh that's it and I, I 
titles are really hard for me and my poor editor has really struggled with me through trying to find them for other books. And I was so proud of myself for having a title for this one and everyone loved it and I was so thrilled. And then there was a moment last September when a couple of people suggested that maybe it was too negative and might be off-putting. And so we went on this search for another title for about two weeks and it sort of shook me, <laughs> shook my confidence in it. And we finally ended up coming back to this as the best one that we'd come up with. Um, and then after November, nobody thought it was too negative anymore. You have at the very beginning two quotes, Americans learn only from catastrophe and not from experience by Theodore Roosevelt. And it is a fact that it takes experience before one can realize what is a catastrophe and what is not by Richard Hughes from A High Wind in Jamaica. Can you talk about that idea of catastrophe and experience and, and what informs the other? Yeah, those have been the epigraphs from the beginning. I started this book six years ago, just the very beginning, and those were the epigraphs. And then I put it aside and wrote the third kid's book and then came back to it. And, and they just feel truer all the time. I think it was the idea of, I feel like I'm, when you go to other countries, you have a sense that people in other countries grow up faster than they do here in the United States. And, um, and I, so I think it kind of worked with that idea of kids who don't know how much danger they're in and Americans sort of not, not knowing what a real catastrophe is. <laughs> um, and, and I, I just thought they worked so beautifully together, partly because they had the same words, but partly because they were about America as a sort of young country and, and these young Americans abroad on their own. Two of the characters, Nora and Raymond, are married. And when they were at the beach, Nora was distracted by um, another man when their mm -hmm. kids disappeared. And you sort of learn through both of their points of view that Nora feels less loved than she once was. But you learn from her husband's point of view that he actually is m massively still in love with her. And it's just interesting how how you could play in this novel with everybody's interiority that we can get so interior we can't see the forest through the trees. I think, you know, marriage is, is such a long mystery and like other people's marriages are always a mystery and sort of being able to occupy them and tease out the way in which the people in it are so, in some ways a mystery to each other, even as close and as long, you know, with as much history as they have. And the way that children affect a marriage and, and, imbalances in all kinds of things affect how people feel about each other and what they think the other person feels about them. I love the idea that there are misunderstandings between people who, who are really close and, and, then, and that those misunderstandings can have consequences and you can kind of dramatize that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Miley Malloy, author of the novel Do Not Become Alarmed. Can you read a passage from something that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. Um, it's, I mean, it's kind of the great passage, but uh, I read 100 Years of Solitude when I was first starting to write stories, which was when I first got out of college and I um, was substitute teaching at my old high school and had, had no idea what I was going to do next and didn't. I started writing short stories, but I didn't think that I could make a living doing that. And, um, 
And I really remember reading that book and finishing it in the art room where I had lunch every day when I was in high school and, and just feeling like the, my head exploded. So I was going to read the part of the first paragraph of that. So from 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. At that time, Macondo was a village of 20 adobe houses built on the bank of a river of clear water that ran along a bed of polished stones, which were white and enormous like prehistoric eggs. The world was so recent that many things lacked names, and in order to, in to indicate them, it was necessary to point. Every year during the month of March, a family of ragged gypsies would set up their tents near the village, and with a great uproar of pipes and kettle drums, they would display new inventions. First, they brought the magnet, a heavy gypsy with an untamed beard and sparrow hands, who introduced himself as Melchiades, put on a bold public demonstration of what he himself called the eighth wonder of the learned alchemists of Macedonia. And tell me more about why you chose that. Just because I think it's such a fabulous beginning, because it has the firing squad and the childhood and that amazing line about the world being so recent that it, it's many things last, last, lacked names and um, that it's a character as a child who you, who you have a hint of his existence as an adult. And it introduces this amazing character, Melchiades, who is going to be this figure throughout the book. And the idea of magnets being sort of magical. I just think it's, it's just this sort of great, great opening of a book. Can you read something that you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? Everything changes so much from the first draft that I feel like the first the, the whole book had everything in it happened and, and on a sentence level, on a chapter level, everything changed by the end. Um, but this was sort of, it was one of the first things I wrote that then changed a lot, but it was also the thing that made a cruise acceptable to these families and sort of irresistible to them when they're sort of ambivalent about it for environmental reasons and uncomfortable about the labor situation on board. But it's sort of about women trying to hold it all together. Uh, so it's the two women on the cruise ship the first day they've just boarded and, and they, they're going to get food for the kids. On the walk to the buffet, Nora linked her arm through Liv's and put her head on her shoulder. This was a genius idea, she said. The children took trays and each got exactly what they wanted. Chinese noodles for Penny, chicken fingers for Sebastian, nori rolls for Marcus, taquitos for June. Watching them eat, Liv felt her mind relax, easing its calculation. Feeding children, even when you had all available resources, took so much planning and forethought. The low-grade anxiety about the next meal started when you were cleaning up the last. But for two weeks, there would never be any question about what was for dinner or lunch or snack. That roving hunter-gatherer part of her brain, which sucked a lot of power and made the other lights dim, she could just turn it off. Do you want to say anything else about this? Well, what I will say is that um, so many women have said to me, that's the feeling, that's exactly the feeling, um, which always makes me happy. And also that uh, table scenes where you've got all these characters and, you're, and there's food coming and there's conversation and you're setting up the characters and you're setting up the plot or sort of interesting juggling, making sure that you've got, you know, that, that there's food and 
the food doesn't take too much attention, but it still feels like a real scene and that you've got people revealing themselves when they speak and moving the plot forward at the same time. So this was sort of the first of those. And then, and then they get sort of more complicated with the adults. Where do you write? At home, uh, writing is hard on your body. And I sitting at a, upright at a desk really messes with my back and shoulders. So I have one of those relax the back chairs that tips back, which is kind of dangerous because you can stay there for a really long time um, and never move. Uh, but that's why I write in one of those at home in the morning, which is a great gift and luxury. I, I think that my brain is just fresher than when I had jobs that I had to write around and I was writing at night. I, I think that my brain doesn't work as well then. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I, uh, I try to do something physical because writing is such a um, sedentary job. So I've, uh, I swim, I walk, I used to play a sport called kayak polo, um, which is like water polo and kayaks, which is great because you, all you can think about is trying to get the ball and, and it really gets you out of your head. I tend to overthink things a lot. And when I stopped doing that, I started doing flying trapeze, which also doesn't let you think because if you're thinking, you'll fall <laughs> or you'll mess stuff up. You'll do stuff too late. So, so uh, some, something, something physical that doesn't let you kind of do the kind of thinking you think you do when you're writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband and Ann Patchett, who are both fantastic readers. I'm so grateful to them. How have you dealt with rejection? Badly. I, it makes me very unhappy. Um, and I feel miserable. And then my husband tells me to get some real problems. And then I just sort of try again. And what is your favorite word? Epanalepsis, which is a rhetorical word for something that happens at the beginning and then, it, and then reoccurs at the end. And I think in narrative, it tends to re return at the end, changed in some way or changed because of what's come before. But I think it's such a beautiful word and such a good narrative strategy. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Miley Malloy, author of the novel Do Not Become Alarmed. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.